Welcome to episode number 27 of Calm History. This is a serial episode featuring part 6 of Titanic, a survival story. I'm Harris, and I created this time machine of tranquility to bring you the drama and excitement of history, but in a calm tone so you can just chill and relax. Alright, this is part six of a Titanic survivor's first-person account. Here's a summary of the prior episode to remind you where things left off. The lifeboat passengers watched the Titanic sink and then struggled to stay warm. With a mix of fear and bravery, their small lifeboats drifted about in the icy sea. Until a rescue ship finally arrived. In this episode, the survivors scramble aboard the rescue ship and start to recover physically and mentally from their traumatic experiences. The rescue ship brings the survivors to New York, allowing them to be reunited with their loved ones. But they also face a throng of media who are eager to tell the stories of the survivors. But the media are also spreading a lot of false information. Unfortunately, much of this false information about the Titanic still exists today. If you would like to listen to all six parts of this story right now as a single, continuous, two-and-a-half-hour mega-episode, then just become a Silk Plus member and listen to bonus episode number eight. This is free for a limited time, and it includes access to all the archive and bonus episodes of Calm History. This includes my other Titanic bonus series called Titanic 360. In the Titanic 360 bonus series, you'll hear what the captain, crew, and other passengers were experiencing during these same moments as our passenger in this series. If that interests you, then just use the link in the episode notes or go to silkpodcasts.com. Okay, time for you to step inside my time machine of tranquility. I hope it distracts and relaxes your overactive brain squirrels. Titanic, A Survival Story, Part 6, The Miraculous Rescue Our lifeboat was sitting aside the Carpathia. It was now our turn to be brought aboard. The passengers of the rescue ship crowded the rails and looked down at all the lifeboats below. They stood quietly aside while the crew of the Carpathia took us aboard. Women from our boat went up the side first, 
climbing rope ladders with a harness around their shoulders to help them ascend. Male passengers scramble next, and the crew last of all. The baby from our lifeboat went up in a bag with the opening tied closed. Remarkably, the baby had been quite well all the time. It never suffered any ill effects from the cold journey in the night. We set foot on the deck with very thankful hearts, grateful to feel a solid ship beneath us once more. The last boatload of survivors was taken aboard the Carpathia at 8.30 a.m. The empty lifeboats were hauled on deck while the collapsibles were abandoned. Not everyone who had been in the lifeboats survived. Four individuals were taken out of the boats dead, and then another four died shortly after being taken aboard the Carpathia. Those eight bodies were committed to the deep later that day. In respect, the engines were stopped, and all passengers on deck bared their heads while a short service was read. The captain had arranged an earlier service in the saloon to respect all of those who were lost and to show gratitude for all of those who were saved. This service occurred while the ship was over the spot where the Titanic sank, as nearly as could be calculated. The Carpathia then continued to steam around the scene of the wreck in the hope of picking up anyone floating on wreckage. As we continued to pass through these tragic waters, there was surprisingly little wreckage to be seen. I saw some wooden deck chairs and small pieces of other wood, but nothing of any size. No more survivors were found. There were a total of 705 survivors aboard the Carpathia. Two more ships soon arrived to the area in response to the Titanic's distress call. The captain of the Carpathia decided to leave any further search for survivors to them. He figured his priority now should be to get the rescued individuals to land. At about 9 a.m., he departed the area with those 705 survivors, in addition to all the other passengers, crew, and officers of the Carpathia. The problem of where to bring us had to be decided next. The Carpathia was initially bound for Gibraltar. The captain could continue his journey there, landing us at the Azores on the way, but he would require more linen and provisions. The survivors were mostly women and children, ill-clad, disheveled, and in need of attention 
that his ship just couldn't give them. If he went that route, it would also put him out of range for wireless communication due to the weak apparatus on his ship. He soon decided against continuing his journey to Gibraltar. Halifax was the nearest major port by distance, but this meant steaming north through the ice, and he thought his passengers wouldn't want to see any more ice. Four days earlier, the Carpathia had departed from New York. The captain decided it was best to just turn around and return to New York. As we began to depart the area, the daylight revealed these huge, flat ice flows of solid ice. When we were in our lifeboat at night, we didn't know they were there. I've wondered since if we could have used those ice flows if we had known they were there. Perhaps we could have brought our lifeboat up to one of those areas of solid ice and disembarked some of our passengers onto it. This would have created space in our boat to go rescue some of the individuals floating in the open sea. I do think it quite feasible to have done so, but I'll never know for sure, of course. We later learned that the ice field was nearly 70 miles long and 12 miles wide and spotted with huge icebergs. Several captains and officers of other ships testified that they had never seen so many dangerous ice flows and icebergs in that area. The Titanic faced unusual and unexpected conditions of ice that night, no doubt. Yet, Captain Smith of the Titanic did know somewhat of their existence, and he didn't fully heed those warnings. That is the troublesome part. Aboard the Carpathia, we were asked politely to have some hot coffee, which we did, and food, which we generally declined. We weren't hungry. Everyone said very little at first about the lost Titanic and our adventures in the night. Some of the passengers on the Carpathia related that we were very quiet as we came aboard. It is quite true. We were. But so were they. There was very little excitement on either side. There was just the quiet demeanor of people in the presence of something too big as yet to lie within their mental grasp, and something that they were not yet ready to discuss. Much that is exaggerated and false has been written about the mental conditions of passengers as they came aboard. We've been described as being too dazed to understand what was happening, as being 
too overwhelmed to speak, as looking with set staring gaze and dazed with the shadow of the dread event. That is, no doubt, what most people would expect in the circumstances. But it doesn't give a faithful record of how we did arrive. It is simply not true. My own impression of our mental condition is that of supreme gratitude and relief at standing on a firm deck of a ship again. I'm aware that experiences differed considerably according to the boats occupied. Those who were uncertain of the fate of their relatives and friends had much to make them anxious and troubled. It's not possible to look into another person's consciousness and say what is written there. But mental conditions can be delineated through facial and bodily expressions. I think joy, relief, and gratitude were the dominant emotions written on the faces of those who climbed the rope ladders and were hauled up in cradles. It must not be forgotten that no one in any one boat knew who were saved in the other boats. Few even knew how many boats there were and how many passengers were saved. Even with so many unknowns and things to be truly anxious about, we were mostly a calm bunch. The hysterical scenes that have been described are imaginative. True, one woman did fill the saloon with hysterical cries immediately after coming aboard. Perhaps she was worried about how many of her friends had been lost at sea. Or perhaps it was overwhelming relief after being in the cold open sea for several stressful hours. One of the first things we did was to crowd around a steward with a bundle of telegraph forms. He was the bearer of the welcome news that we could send telegraph messages to our relatives free of charge. Hundreds of survivors prepared handwritten notes to be sent. The pile of messages to be sent by wireless transmission must have been a tall pile indeed. Unfortunately, we learned later that many of these messages never reached their destination. This is not a matter of surprise. It was just too large of a task. There was only one operator on board. He had so much to do that he fell asleep over this work after three days of continuous duty without rest. But we didn't know the messages weren't sent, so we had imagined our friends were aware of our safety. There was another reason that we believe the world knew the names of all the survivors. On Monday, 
a roll call of the rescue was held in the Carpathia Saloon. These names were then telegraphed even before our messages were supposed to be sent. But there were mistakes in that list of names that was telegraphed. The experience of my own friends illustrates both of these failures of communication. The message I wrote them never got through to England, and my name was not on the telegraphed list of survivors. Even a week later, there were problems. I looked at a list of the missing and saw my name on that list. Obituary notices about me even appeared in some English papers. The reverse was also a problem. Some people who had perished in the tragedy were being reported as survivors. An American gentleman who sat near me in the Titanic library on Sunday didn't survive the sinking. Yet, he was consistently reported as saved and alive on the Carpathia. So his son journeyed to New York to meet him when the Carpathia arrived. But of course, his father wasn't there. As the Carpathia steamed towards New York, the passengers were now working hard to find clothes for the survivors. Even the barber shop was raided for ties, collars, hairpins, and combs. One good Samaritan went around the ship with a box of toothbrushes, offering them to all of the survivors. In some cases, clothing couldn't be found for the ladies. As a result, many spent the rest of the time on board in their nightgowns and cloaks in which they had had on in the lifeboats. There were also not enough extra beds on the ships for the survivors. So, many women had to sleep each night on the floor of the saloons and in the library on straw mattresses. There also weren't proper locations to undress properly so most just slept in whatever clothes they wore during the day. The men slept on the smoking room floor with a supply of blankets, but this room was small, and some elected to sleep out on the deck. I made a comfortable bed on a pile of towels that I found on the bathroom floor. Later, I was awoken in the middle of the night by a man offering me a bed in his four-berth cabin. Another occupant was unable to leave his berth for physical reasons, and so the cabin couldn't be used for the ladies. On the next morning after our rescue, some of us survivors met in the saloon and formed a committee. The purpose was to collect donations for a general fund. The fund would be used to help the third-class passenger survivors and 
to bestow gifts on our rescuers. We plan to present a loving cup to the ship's captain and medals to the officers and crew of the Carpathia. Any surplus funds would be divided among the surviving crew of the Titanic. The presentations to the captain and crew were completed later when the Carpathia returned from a Mediterranean trip. The U.S. Senate also later awarded the ship's captain a gold medal to commemorate the rescue. On the afternoon after our rescue, I visited the third-class survivors with a fellow passenger to take down the names of all who were saved. We grouped them into nationalities. They were English, Irish, and Swedish mostly. We learned their names and homes, the amount of money they possessed, and whether they had friends in America. Almost all of the Irish women had no money rescued from the wreck, and they were going to friends in New York or places near. In contrast, the Swedish survivors, who were mostly men, had rescued the greater part of their money. They also had railway tickets through to their destinations inland. The saving of the money marked a curious difference of these two groups, for which I can offer no explanation. No doubt the Irish women never had very much, but they must have had the necessary amount fixed by the immigration laws. There were some pitiful cases of women whose children and husband had perished, some with one or two children saved and the others lost. In one case, a whole family was missing, and only a friend was left to tell of them. Among the Irish group was one girl who lost no relatives on the Titanic. Overall, these examples just highlight a mix of bad and good situations. Due to bad weather, the journey of the Carpathia to New York took about three to four days. I, and many other survivors, made good use of this time. One thing that we accomplished on the Carpathia was to draft a letter to the London Times. It was written after we learned that ice warnings had been sent to the Titanic. We all felt that something must be done to awaken public opinion and safeguard ocean travel in the future. Although I wrote the letter in first person and signed my name, others did review it and help shape its contents. Here are some key parts of the letter. Dear London Times, I'm one of the few surviving Englishmen from the steamship Titanic. I'm asking you to lay before your readers a few facts concerning the disaster. First, it was known to those in charge of the Titanic 
that we were in the iceberg region. Second, at the time of the collision, the Titanic was running at a high rate of speed. Third, the accommodation for saving passengers and crew was totally inadequate. No vessel should be allowed to leave a British port without sufficient rescue accommodations and training for all aboard. Fourth, the Carpathia, with courage, resource, and devotion, did all they could with the means at their disposal to rescue those who were shipwrecked. Fifth, the practice of running postal mail and passenger vessels through fog and iceberg regions at a high speed is a common one and should be reconsidered for safety. Yours faithfully, Lawrence Beasley Also while on the Carpathia, we prepared an account of the disaster for the press. We wanted to calm public opinion and prevent inaccurate reports. The first impression is often the most permanent, and in a disaster of this magnitude, preparation of a report was essential. It was written in odd corners of the deck and the saloon of the Carpathia. The report fell happily into the hands of a reporter from the Associated Press who could best deal with it. I understand. It was the first report that came through and had a good deal of the effect intended. After almost four days on the overcrowded Carpathia, everyone was looking forward to reaching New York. Some were looking forward to the necessities of proper clothing and toilets, while others looked forward to seeing friends and family at the port. Surprisingly, None of the survivors were ill as we neared New York. The captain testified that everyone was quite healthy, except for some frostbite and shaken nerves. There were none of the illnesses supposed to follow from hours of exposure on a cold night. A considerable number had even swum about for some time when the Titanic sank. They then either sat for hours in their wet clothing in a lifeboat or lay on a floating object until they were taken into a lifeboat. There was no need for those ashore to call the Carpathia a death ship or to send coroners and coffins to the pier to meet her. The passengers of the Carpathia were generally in good health and they didn't pretend they were not. Eight days after leaving our departure port in Southampton, England, we sighted our arrival port in New York. So many dramatic incidents had occurred in the prior four days that the first four peaceful days of our voyage have almost faded from our memories. In New York, our ship was surrounded by tugs of every kind. 
camera flashes burst from all of these tugs, as well as from every nearby building. Reporters shouted to the passengers for news of the disaster and to get photographs. The Carpathia drew slowly into her station at the pier, and the gangways were pushed across so we could disembark. At last, we set foot on American soil as very thankful and grateful people. The mental and physical condition of the rescued as they came ashore has, here again, been greatly exaggerated. One description says we were half fainting, half hysterical, bordering on hallucination, only now beginning to realize the horror. It is unfortunate such pictures should be presented to the world. There were some painful scenes of meeting between relatives of those who were lost. But once again, most showed their self-control and went through the ordeal in most cases with extraordinary calm. It is well to record that the same account added a few, strangely enough, are calm and lucid. If you replace the word few with the words a large majority, then that would be much more accurate. There seems to be no adequate reason why such a report should depict mainly the sorrow and the grief. That it should seek to satisfy the horrible, and the morbid of the human mind. The first questions the excited crowds of reporters asked as they crowded round were of this nature. They asked whether it was true that officers shot passengers and then themselves. They asked whether passengers shot each other. They wanted to know about any scenes of horror and what the details were. It would have been better to focus on the wonderful state of health that most of the survivors were in, to report about their gratitude for their deliverance, or any of the other many things that gave cause for rejoicing. In particular, the Carpathia brought back over 700 reasons for celebration and joy. The Titanic was a tragedy, with many victims, of course. But it was also a miracle, with many survivors, saints, and heroes. This is the end of the episode. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Calm History. If you'd like to listen to all six parts of this story right now as a single, continuous, two-and-a-half-hour mega-episode, then just become a Silk Plus member and listen to bonus episode number eight. This is free for a limited time, and it includes access to all the archive 
and bonus episodes of Calm History, which includes my other Titanic bonus series called Titanic 360. In the Titanic 360 bonus series, you'll hear what the captain, crew, and other passengers were experiencing during these same moments as our passenger in this series. If that interests you, then just use the link in the episode notes or go to silkpodcasts.com. Thank you for listening to my podcast. Calm History is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to enjoy more podcasts like The Constant, Underworld, and Subtext.